0: This is Bob Ambrogi, and welcome to This Week in Legal Blogging, presented by Lexblog. Lexblog is home to the world's largest community of legal bloggers, and is the industry-leading provider of professional blogs and turnkey digital publishing solutions to lawyers and to the world's largest law firms for more than 16 years. Once again, this is Bob Ambrogi, editor at LawScienceBlog.com, and for our 34th episode of This Week in Legal Blogging, I'm excited to be joined by Ohio State University Professor of Law Douglas Berman. He is the Newton D. Baker, Baker and Hostetler Chair in Law and Executive Director of the Drug Enforcement and Policy Center at Ohio State. And the reason he's joining us today, is the owner and publisher of the blog Sentencing Law and Policy. Doug, welcome to This Week in Legal Blogging.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Bob.
0: You are one of those people who's been blogging uh, pretty much as long as I've been blogging. You've been doing this for a, a long time now and, and you're still at it. For listeners who may not know you or your work, tell us about yourself and what you do.
1: Happy to do so. I mean go all the way back. I went straight through to law school after my undergraduate experiences, and uh, I was a philosophy major undergrad, and law school seemed like a good place to do applied philosophy, I thought. you know, As I was at law school, I, I really took to the academic components of it, I think. you know, really was excited about getting on a law review and, and kind of engaging with legal scholarship. You know, applied for clerkships, had the great honor of clerking for two different judges on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. First, John O. Newman, who was chief judge, uh, and then I followed that up with a second clerkship with Judge Guido Calabresi, who had been the dean of Yale Law School. And it was actually his first year as a judge that I got to clerk for him. And both of those experiences further reinforced my sense that, that kind of engaging with legal scholarship, you know, working on legal ideas, high-end theory, and, and how theory and practice could come together. It really excited me and i always had a kind of a vision of both working on legal scholarship and finding a way back to the law school environment and so after my two clerkships i worked as a litigation associate at paul weiss rifkin wharton and garrison in new york city and really got a lot out of that but found myself often as I was working on a matter, you know, oh, I'd love to read a bunch of law review articles about how the law should change, <laughs> rather than, you know, making sure that, that it be applied perfectly for our clients in this setting. And so that further advanced my sense of of I should be interested in sort of scratching that inch and, and seeing what being a law professor would be all about. I also had the good fortune to get connected with particularly uh, Professor Mark Miller and Dan Freed, who were the founding editors of a journal called the Federal Sentencing Reporter. Uh, which kind of very much sought to bridge theory and practice. We think of it as a traditional law journal, but one with uh, judges and practicing lawyers as kind of the focal point for a lot of the the articles we produce that are all much shorter and you know more lightly footnoted than than you see in traditional legal publications. And so working on that journal further advanced my sense not only a uh, that I liked the idea of being a legal academic, but that I was interested in doing so in areas that kept connection to practice. As I was looking for teaching jobs, I expressed an interest, which was pretty radical at the time that I wanted to develop a course uh, in on sentencing. You know, the traditional criminal law course in the first year of law school just covers sort of the basics of criminal law. And then you'll have traditional criminal procedure courses that you know, deal with police practices or courtroom experiences. But historically, and still to this day, there aren't that many courses that are dedicated to sentencing topics. Exclusively and, and I expressed an interest in, in doing that. And Ohio State, wonderfully, was not only interested in hiring me, but they were very open to the idea of letting me teach in that space. And so my very first year at Ohio State, I developed this specialty course that focused on sentencing and a range of topics connected to it. And this all actually leads into the blog because the materials I developed for that course ultimately became the foundation for a casebook. I co-authored with, with Mark Miller and a couple other faculty members a couple years later. And it was our need to produce a website to support the book that got me thinking about creating a blog. And it all has this incredible continuity to it with lots of serendipity that, that makes me incredibly just grateful when I look back that it all worked out as well as it
0: did. It's funny you say that because I I originally started my own blog because of a book and I I had written a book and and I felt like as soon as I wrote the book, it was out of date and and it just didn't seem to make sense to uh, put out new uh, editions of the book to keep up to date with things. And I'd heard about blogs and it seemed like a very sensible way to to, uh, keep people informed of developments. Is, Is that similar to what your experience was?
1: Not only similar, that was my vision for the blog originally was that I would have category archives that specifically were labeled the chapters in this text so that I imagine it really being a service to faculty, myself included, would be teaching from the text and they would go and, oh, okay, you know, let's see what chapter two's heading, which was about, you know, different people who were involved in the sentencing process. Oh, good. Berman's got a new report that just came from the state sentencing commission you know, sort of talking this or that, you know, maybe I'll want to share that with students, maybe I won't, but it's a nice way to kind of keep up with what's going on. And it struck me, and this is exactly you know the serendipity of timing, static websites, you know, seemed so themselves out of date pretty quickly, <laughs> unless you were regularly updating them. And the, what I thought was so appealing about the way blogs were structured is that you could have some static content, you know, on the sidebars, so you'd have some sort of permanent matters there but then you know the internal uh, structure would just be these updating posts and people would know what's out of date and what's not right that you wouldn't have to the the technology itself signaled effectively okay this is kind of the newer stuff um you know and this is the older stuff sort of drops out or still there in an archive i think is really really important something i still care a lot about in maintaining my blogs is i think the archives themselves can can have some real value in them and give you a flavor for you know what i was thinking what other people were thinking at a particular time but it fit so well with what i was hoping to achieve not just you know vis-a-vis supplementing the the textbook we had just produced but you know my own kind of evolution about what was going on in the sentencing universe and and the value of kind of keeping a running tab on what other people were saying as well
0: yeah i think those archives are extremely important i mean you started your blog in i think 2004, if I have that
1: right. You got that right. So that's a lot of archives. It is. It is. It's funny. I remember particularly because, you know, once the Supreme Court decided these big sentencing cases, things were really going gangbusters, you know, not, not long after I got started, I was making a habit in part because I was nervous, maybe the website will disappear somehow, that I should like cut and paste everything I was doing into like a Word document. So I had my own, you know, precious archive in case anything happened. And then I kind of realized, yeah, it's really not that valuable. anyway. And I think it'll, I think it'll persist. But you know, it's funny when I think back to those early days, not just uncertainty about content and how to be effective as a blogger, but thinking both short and long term about kind of what this technology facilitated, you know, a lot of that's become kind of resolved just by, by practice over time. But one of the things that I thought was so exciting in that era especially was how the technology was evolving to make so much more material accessible. And that was a big part of what, what got me excited about being in, in this medium.
0: You talked about how this grew out of other kinds of work you were doing in your academic career and scholarship work you were doing it. What are your thoughts on the role of blogs in, in legal scholarship? Has it evolved over the years in which you've been doing this?
1: I think it has. And I think a variety of forces have have shaped it. I actually think blogs are an amazing thing for law professors to be doing. And in fact, you know, early on, especially when there were you know, lots of folks at different levels of kind of hierarchy in the legal academy, there was a lot of—I don't want to quite call it navel gazing but just sort of conversations about is this appropriate for law professors to be doing it? When should you be doing it? How should you be doing it? Should it, you know, all be focused on your area, or is it okay to talk about movies and sports and other sorts of things? And you know, different law professor blogs have, have uh, kind of found different spaces in 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 that debate. What I like so much about blogging, what leads me to persistently advise even junior academics and others to to jump into this space is it's an area in which I feel like I can be serving all three missions that we think law professors should do kind of at the same time. And so we talk about in the academy that we have teaching responsibilities, we have scholarship expectations, and then we have service expectations as well. And all are vague in a bunch of different ways but you know we think teachings in the classroom scholarships writing your law review articles uh, and service might be you know being on a committee or uh working with the local bar on you know a, a bar association project or whatever it might be and there's a risk i certainly find at times that some of the some of those roles you get siloed okay well i've got to teach this class i can't be working on my scholarship now my scholarship is so intricate or theoretical it doesn't really make sense to bring that in the classroom on oh, my service that's working with regular lawyers uh who are practicing day-to-day that's you know not directly connected to either my teaching or my scholarship and i found over time as i was blogging i would do things that i could bring into the classroom so i'd often still to this day generally expect my students to keep up with my blog just to sort of notice the kind of real-time things i'm covering there and occasionally i'll bring that into the classroom more directly. uh, Definitely, I both promote other people's scholarship, promote my own scholarship, develop scholarly ideas through the blog space, and then the service component, both again in providing access to a lot of materials to practicing lawyers, and and often I think of even uh, incarcerated persons and a range of other kind of audiences that are touched in a variety of ways by the criminal justice system. That I think is an important role in and of itself too. And so I feel very comfortable on a day-to-day basis that if i spend my whole day blogging it's not i haven't been doing my job often feel like i'm doing job as well if not better than if i was holed up in a room just obsessing over a paragraph on an article i'm writing or you know working on my teaching notes and um you know it, it, it's never obviously that segmented typically a day of mine will be looking over my teaching notes working on a paragraph of an article i'm writing and doing a blog post or two but I really you know, still think it's a great forum for that. I will say, I sense that there were lots of law professors who felt the same way, or at least the ones who became prominent bloggers for you know a five or six year period in those early days. And then over time, other medium. These days, I'd especially say Twitter and podcasting has kind of taken up a lot of that space. And I don't grudge it, and I am really impressed with people who use those mediums really well. But I really sense that you know a lot of folks who would have been pretty regular bloggers or even were regular bloggers have have migrated because uh, different technologies have have sort of captured our imagination in different ways and blogging seems a little bit dated and i think at times seems harder to reach audiences in quite the same way as some of these newer technologies.
0: Yeah, although uh, ironically, I think blogging still reaches a much greater audience than say, podcasting. And yet, as you say, everybody wants to be podcasting. <laughs> yeah. uh, and blogging lets you get into a depth that you, you never can. I mean, you can get into it in a different way in a podcast, but you can't get into the kind of uh, depth of, of, you know, writing a, about an area of law or even a particular case uh, on a Podcast that you can in a blog post, don't you think?
1: Absolutely. And in fact, you know, when I see people who do Twitter streams that have like 48 entries, I'm like, just get a blog and link to it. You know, it's like, this is not really what this medium is meant for. And and again, I understand that there's all sorts of reasons why. And in fact, you know, for me, one of the sadnesses of my own sense that people have transitioned to other medium is I used to get a lot of comments on the blog, especially in the early years. And now I think there's much fewer, not because people aren't engaging, but because they're finding it on Twitter. And if they want to comment, they'll tweet a comment, or they're just you know less inclined to click through, and especially if they're on their phone, you know, type in a comment um, because they're on their phone. And so you know, it, it's just it's so interesting to myself look back at the way in which different kinds of engagement are both facilitated and um, uh, challenged as the technology is
0: evolved. Correct me if I'm wrong, but yours was the first blog ever to be cited by the U.S. Supreme Court, and you've also been cited by a number of uh, appellate and district court rulings. Do I have that correct?
1: You do have that correct. I always clarify that the Supreme Court site was for a document that was exclusively on my blog but i still think that counts because of course i was providing access to a document that the supreme court thought was important enough to cite and it wasn't anywhere else and that's you know again gets me back to something that i think is a huge part of what i try to achieve through the blog which is transparency and accessibility in our justice systems writ large in the sentencing system in particular are such important sets of values, and so a big thing that I'm always trying to achieve is to provide access to original sources, to provide information that may not otherwise, you know, be readily accessible. You know, whether it's the law students, practicing lawyers, the, the broader academic community, and so it's so fun and interesting for me to be able to lay claim to the first blog cited by the U.S. Supreme Court, and then have to specify, well, it was my editorial choice to publish this document that wasn't available other places, it wasn't my, you know, unique commentary that was there. And that actually feeds into, with other courts citing me, I know there was early on uh, a real reservation about whether it was sort of appropriate to cite a blog post as opposed to an article that you might find on a blog, but that, you know, you're not citing directly to the post. And I think that's another thing that's changed over time, right? Courts have become more comfortable with uh, not only citing to blog posts, but Understanding that there's a heck of a lot of things that are only on the internet, and it's not necessarily a problem uh, that you're citing to an internet source, whatever its origins might be, because so much of our content in our world lives only there now.
0: You know, hey, the New York Times still gets credit for publishing the Pentagon Papers. They didn't write them, but they published them. So, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there you go. I like that. I appreciate being uh, analogized to the time.
0: Have, have there been posts that you've published over the years that, that have been. Uh, controversial or that that have elicited particular reaction uh topics you've written
1: about yeah i mean i've gotten pushback of all sort and i can use that supreme court site as an interesting example where the document was an internal department of justice memo to other prosecutors talking about how it should deal with the, the legal uncertainty after uh, this case blakely kind of disrupted the federal sentencing guidelines but in a in an opaque way and The document itself said, this is an internal document to DOJ lawyers, but a lawyer outside of DOJ sent it to me (laughs) and said, you know, I think you and your readers will be interested in this. And so I felt comfortable publishing it. And I got some pushback from somebody inside DOJ saying, you know, it's an internal document. Do you feel comfortable publishing that? You know, if, if it had been a defense attorney memo that said privileged and confidential, know, would you have put it up there? And I then started to preach about how government lawyers are different than private attorneys. And I thought it was important that the government be as transparent as possible, especially during these confusing times and so on and so forth. And there can be a lot of those sort of little things. And, you know, another version of this, which again, for the practicing lawyers out there was really interesting. Early on, when I was working on amicus briefs, uh, I would sometimes make a habit of posting the brief before it got officially filed in court, sometimes you had to make a motion as an amicus, you know. And we had a lawyer at one point say in this process, you know, you've, you know, blogs are going to make obsolete the rules for court submissions because you know the clerks will go on the blog and they'll read the brief there. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether you get admitted to the court at all. In fact, you know, there'll be a workaround that people won't even have to be practicing lawyers, you know, to file documents. They could just file it on a blog and. You know, everybody can tell the clerks, go read this. And so, you know, the, those interesting little, you know, practice flash, you know, advocacy issues, you know, come up in a variety of different contexts, you know, and, and in a variety of different settings. and And ultimately, for me, that's part of the value is sort of discovering, you know, what are the professional norms we have, and are those healthy ones, right? That there are these barriers, whether it's, you know, being a member of a bar or actually applying to get a brief filed or whatever the case may be, it can sometimes limit the ability of, of you know, respectable, interested parties kind of weighing in on matters. The flip of that, of course, is, you know, there's some not so respectable interested parties too. And so, you know, those are always sort of interesting moments as well, where, um, you know, it can especially be high profile cases. Um, where, you know, I, I sometimes can worry a bit, you know, is my blogging about that case going to lead to more people, you know, maybe sending a note to the the judge that's supposed to sentence, you know, Lori Laughlin or whomever, right, um, you know, about what to say or what not to say. And so those are the issues that come up at the, you know, kind of the intersection of blogging, you know, practice and advocacy that I, you know, I, I think about a fair amount and that, you know, often lacking of, of clear answers, but um, as an academic, I the good fortune of having a day job, <laughs> so I try to steer clear of too much trouble. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, that's why I was wondering whether you've ever encountered a situation of, of you know, somebody like a, a judge or someone just kind of commenting to you on uh, uh, something that you'd written on your blog, or or even that they read your blog. I mean, other than other than the fact that they've cited you in opinions, which I guess tells you that right there. But uh, uh, you know, I wonder whether it ever comes up uh, informally uh, in in conversations or otherwise.
1: It does. I mean, there's, there's no doubt, especially, again, in sort of the early days when, um, you know, the federal sentencing jurisprudence was, was very much in churn yeah, after these big Blakely and Booker Supreme Court cases. And I was spending so much time not just, um, you know, commenting on where I thought the law should be going, but, you know, capturing particularly circuit rulings and even some district court rulings that, that covered this. Uh, I found myself getting invited to circuit conferences more to talk about sentencing issues. that raised my profile that way, and you know judges were often you know very kind to say you know it's been so valuable to have your blog, so we know what's going on out there, and especially in times and it's funny because with COVID it's sort of been been replicated a little bit in in debates over some of the prison litigation, but in times when the law is moving so quickly and dynamically you know, circuit courts, the briefs will come in, you know, a month, maybe even more before oral argument. And, you know, hopefully the lawyers at oral argument know what's happened since they filed their briefs, but, you know, that they can't cover all of that. And so when my areas of law are moving in this just sort of incredible real time, um, you know, I think I especially try to sort of provide the service of, you know, updating the field as much as I reasonably can and keeping track of, of big rulings. And um, and that's, that's the thing that I think judges rightly, you know, are happy <laughs> to look to me to provide because they, they certainly want to know about, you know, other big rulings in their field before they're, they're weighing in. And the, you know, usually the parties will provide that reasonably well, but it, I, I think it's a, a helpful check to have another source.
0: Yeah. You know, you allude to... Uh... Blogging helping to have raised your your profile. Uh, what do you think has been its impact on on your career as a as a law professor?
1: Uh, it, for me, it's been profound. Though I think it's so much you know, kind of right place at the right time. You mentioned that I started in two thousand four. Again, I mentioned earlier, I was sort of you know coming off of completing the sentencing Facebook, which itself put me kind of in the right frame of mind for doing the kind of Almost treatise-like work that that I think an effective blog try to do in different ways. So it started where I was at the perfect time in my career, having been five or six years a professor, you know, comfortable enough in the classroom, comfortable enough with the core issues that I wanted to cover, and 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 had written a couple articles to further that. And then along comes these big Supreme Court cases, which you know had both the benefit of elevating my field more generally. Right. Any major Supreme Court case in any law professor's field is just going to get that much more buzz from other law professors, from uh, practicing lawyers and, and and so many others. And then that it was so complicatedly dynamic and kind of ongoing 24 seven that it just so fit uh, what blogs could do at the time. And I was I will readily say and I invested an awful lot of time in focusing on blogging as opposed to. Um, you know, lots of other things, though. Again, I, I discovered pretty quickly, the more I blogged, the more ideas I had for writing law review articles, the more ways I wanted to engage students in the classroom around these sets of topics. And so that was itself a wonderful discovery is seeing that time blogging wasn't time taken away from other stuff, but it, it had a of catalytic effect. And then it because I was the only one doing this, especially as intensely as I was doing it, raise you know, raised my profile in, in all sorts of quarters. I remember Blakely decision in, in summer 2004, within a month, there was a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, you know, where somebody mentioned my blog. Um, so many courts had referenced in one way or another, my blog, that there was actually a Wall Street Journal article written about a blog. And you know, this was people can remember the time when blogs were still this kind of Interesting, weird phenomenon, and boy, isn't it exciting that this new thing is there and people are paying attention to it? And so, again, that's where I think it was—you know—a function of timing uh, just right. But then I got offers to, you know, speak at, at uh, like I mentioned, the judicial conferences and academic symposia. That I would like to imagine, even without the blog, you know, I would have I would have gotten some of those opportunities. But there was no doubt that I was covering the right issue at the right time, but particularly kind of in the right way right because uh, it was both i could bring a a a quite significant amount of expertise because i was a law professor that you know gave me both some credibility and an ability to take the time uh, that a practicing lawyer might not have because they had real clients that you know maybe even an academic but this wasn't their core area didn't have the same background on so all of that wonderful combination of, of moments and and opportunities that I feel like I was able to take advantage of. And I also knew it was unlikely to persist indefinitely, you know, that, that hot topics come and go. And so I was extra excited to, to get the most out of it. And then for me, part of the, what's exciting about that is it's continued to give me a happiness with blogging. It still feels like something I want to do literally every day. But at times I have a little bit of a, oh boy, remember those days when I would open my email and there would be you know, two different judges and somebody else prominent, you know, saying, hey, what do you think about this? Or what are you doing about that? You know, now the, the field has gotten crowded in a variety of ways. And the topic is, even though in some sense, even more, you know, quote unquote, popular, right? There's more discussion of criminal justice reform, you know, across the political spectrum and in, in a range of advocacy arenas. There's also so many more people who are fully educated and informed about all these topics. And, and so, um you know necessarily it's it's uh, the spotlight moves around and i ultimately think that's a good thing because you know another thing that i really try to achieve with the blog is to get as many different types of voices kind of reflected in my work and and um you know, that's, that's part of the excitement is it's a setting that allows me to do that in different ways.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're being modest in, in saying right place, right time, because you really were a trailblazer at the time. And uh, I, I'm old enough, to, old enough to remember back then because, you know, blogging was still uh, out of the ordinary and, and especially for academics. I mean, uh, the Law Professor Blog Network really uh, did help drive uh, academics into blogging, I think, and, and helped raise the prominence of those blogs. But, you know, I, I think, as you said, this this was a, a. It did serve to bring a lot of these topics more into the public forum, I think, than than maybe they had been before. You know, I was never a fan of of law reviews myself, uh, and uh, I mean, I've never been an academic either. So, just from my just from my own perspective, uh, blogs such as yours really kind of brought brought to me topics and and thoughts about topics that I, I might not otherwise have encountered. So, I, I think it's really important.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think you know it's interesting because I. You know wrote the obligatory really long law review articles to get tenure and, and kind of have my position and i mentioned earlier that you know, legal scholarship excited me but especially in the field i feel like care most about there's so many audiences other than other legal academics that i wanted to reach and thought i had something important to say about the field and so i quickly sort of took to the blog as not oh that's a strange way for a law professor to express themselves but Oh wow lots of people can access this and there's lots of different ways i can use the technology to try to make points in different kinds of ways that the traditional you know long-form law review article uh, doesn't allow and i think i'm not sure everybody would quite connect the dots this way but i'm comfortable doing so i think an awful lot of important short-form scholarship and commentary that we now not only take for granted but that is you know I sense a churn of economic development as well as as idea development rightly should you know look back to blogs as the sort of progenitor of and and you know these days even as i'm reading um you know materials that are being submitted to congress or submitted to a court citing a vox article or you know uh, something that's a even a law review piece but it's just the online law review that's only four pages long that's now you know not only acceptable I, i think many people will prefer that to having to go read a 70 page article to find an idea that's important. And so yeah, that's where um, not only do I share your your hesitation about law reviews generally, but I think blogs have played an important role in kind of evolving our understanding of the way in which legal ideas can be effectively conveyed. And that's, that's where I'll always be proud of having whatever small role I had in helping to achieve that.
0: Well, I I know we're short on time, but I I wanted to ask as just to close things out, whether there are lessons you've learned about blogging that you would want to share with others or advice for others who are considering blogs or starting blogs, uh, any best practices you've learned?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think first, I would say anybody who is drawn to the idea, try it out. The wonderful thing about blogs, among other things, is it's not much of a commitment. Uh, You know, you find find a website that works for you and start doing it. Um, And if it doesn't fit you for whatever sets of reasons, you know, move on to something else. And so uh, I would encourage everybody to to try jumping in. I would also say figuring out both kind of your voice and your vision, Uh, not in a very sort of detailed way. You don't need to come up with a mission statement for your blog. But, you know, decide, do I want this to be you know relatively professional and obviously there are you know uh, law firms and others that have you know, very formalized you know, sort of blogs as part of what they do uh and that's fine and that helps define the voice but uh it's perfectly appropriate to be funny or you know even as silly as do you want a picture with each of your blog posts that's part of sort of figuring your voice out and it also will shape how much time you'll spend right. doing some of right. these things because, those pictures can be know, killers that, that, <laughs> yeah, and, and they can be great fun. You can learn things. If it's amazing what sites I'll find when I'm looking for a good picture for a particular idea. But um, you know, that's, that's again, part of the, sort of the voice. And then the vision is, do I want to be, you know, on a particular topic and really go deep, you know, it's sort of a breadth versus depth. Law professors talk about that a lot when we teach classes, you know, do I want to provide the entire field and, you know, just help people feel comfortable in very general terms with a big, broad field or do I really want to go deep? and and sort of get into the nitty gritty of a particular topic. And I think not only are both of those you know blog appropriate, I think you can make different choices, you know, one week to the next. But I think that's really where kind of as you approach blogging, um, you know, sort of figuring out kind of what kind of vision you want to have for for the the way you talk about issues and what issues you choose to talk about can become very important. And then last but not least, and this is the one that, that I think is is most important for me on a sort of a day-to-day basis and do it for yourself and figure out a way to blog so that if in fact zero people read your blog that day or the next day or the next day, it's still time reasonably well spent. And for me, I find, and this again, I think fortunate I have teaching, doing scholarship, doing service, I learn so much by blogging and part of that learning is oh look at all the materials that are out here that i haven't spent that much time thinking or talking about and oh do i want to blog about this topic i learn about myself in important ways as i'm sort of contemplating what content do i want to do what do i find interesting what do i don't find interesting and so i think if you approach blogging much more about sort of self-discovery now again I get it. I have the luxury uh, of a tenured position, so I don't need to worry too much about getting clients or, or you know, figuring out uh, the best way to to use it for professional development. But I do think it's hard uh, to stay at it unless you're seeing that you're getting something out of it intrinsically, rather than just oh, it's getting me this client or it's getting me this you know uh, opportunity instrumentally. It, it's it's going to be hard to sustain uh producing you know consistent content um if if you don't find it meaningful you know on its own terms and and i've been impressed or really surprised for myself that you know different topics move me different ways i have another blog once i started getting involved in marijuana uh, law and policy uh that i created uh because i was doing too much marijuana blogging on the sentencing law blog and i'm just not as drawn to blogging there every day or even, you know, on a regular basis, not because the topics don't interest me, but because I kind of notice the things I want to say in that space. Some other people are saying perhaps as well, if not better at times. And so I'm just not going there as much as I'm always going back to the sentencing blog, where I always have, uh, you know, some topic, some developments, something that, that captures my attention that, that draws me back onto the, onto the space.
0: Yeah, that's such a great insight about about learning about yourself through blogging um, I, I that one I have to ponder a bit because I, I think that's so true and I don't think I ever really thought about that but that's that's such a great point
1: well good I'm glad I made you think Bob that I, I this has been a successful podcast
0: that's easy I've got a lot to think about <laughs> well thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today I really appreciate it it's been great to speak with you
1: I really appreciate you having me on. It's really wonderful to talk about these topics and I'm looking forward to continuing to listen to the podcast as other people talk about.
0: Again, we've been speaking with Douglas Berman, uh, author of Sentencing Law and Policy, which you can find at sentencing.typepad.com. Once again, this was episode 34 of This Week in Legal Blogging. Uh, if you haven't yet, be sure to peruse our full library of shows where you can wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. Uh, and while you're there, if you want to drop us a quick rating or review, we'd appreciate it. Lastly, head over to lexblog.com TWILB or TWIL for this week in legal blogging for transcribed Q&As of each and every show. On behalf of myself and everybody at Lexblog, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.